Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. And we are live for book club, y'all. Hello, and uh, it's going to be a great night. I am uh, sweating a little bit because you should join me in this commitment for every hour of screen time on Zoom calls and whatnot, uh, doing your social media. Let's do some push-ups and sit-ups, some cardio. So <laughs> we might start doing that. Uh, uh, I'm trying to do like 20 push-ups and sit-ups for every hour that I'm on any social media, which I've been trying to like um, get out and do less screen time anyway. But I'm so glad that you can join us tonight. Uh, we've been doing a book club for a few years and every month we uh, read a book together. We talk with the author or authors. And uh, I'm going to introduce Bishop Mark Beckwith in just a minute. But first, let me tell you that we got some cool stuff going on uh, this month at Red Letter Christians. We've got morning prayer every first of the month. So the first day of each month, usually at 9 a.m., we do morning prayer together. This month, we are going to be joined by Pastor Todd Yeary, who is the chair of the board of Red Letter Christians. He's also the senior pastor of Douglas Memorial Community Church down in Baltimore. Incredible brother. Also, over the last couple of years, became a lawyer. So he is a dangerous cocktail of a pastor and a lawyer. The resistance is getting organized. Watch out, Proud Boys and the NRA. We got some pastors that are lawyers now. And uh, it's uh, great. Uh, What else we got? We got... um, Our book of the month this month uh, for September, little drum roll, boom, American Idolatry from Andrew Whitehead. Uh, Andrew's um, just an incredible brother, been done a bunch of stuff with us around Christian nationalism. It's going to be a great book. Pretty easy, like not not too thick. So grab a copy of American Idolatry. Read it with me this month. Andrew's going to join us at the end of September. Um, So. This weekend has also been a pretty fun weekend. If you've looked at our social medias, um, we've had the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, and Caroline, his wife, uh, here at our house. They were staying right here uh, for the last couple of days. We spent it together, um, and uh, he's the head of the, or the spiritual leader of the Anglican Church, 85 million Christians around the world, and has been a courageous voice. Um, on, on so many fronts, um, welcoming immigrants around sexuality, around um, uh, just all kinds of stuff. He's he's a, such a voice of compassion and justice. So um, you can see a little bit more about his visit and everything on our social media. And so it's been a weekend of bishops and arch, archbishops. And tonight uh, is 
one more bishop friend, uh, Mark Beckwith. This is his book, which some of you all have been reading with us. It's okay if you didn't do your homework, if you're just joining in and haven't read it yet, but check it out. Consider grabbing a copy of it. Uh, Seeing the Unseen, Beyond Prejudices, Paradigms, and Party Lines. I had the honor of doing the foreword to it. There's all kinds of great endorsements. And uh, Mark is a retired bishop in the Episcopal Church um, for 12 years and has done a lot of writing and a lot of organizing. So he's not just a kind of a um, theology alone, but also an organizer and helped organize the Bishops United Against Gun Violence. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but welcome, buddy. Good to see you. Thank you. Thank you, Shane. Thank you again. It's uh, it's good to be sharing this work with you. Um, uh, again, Shane uh, wrote the foreword to the book, uh, for which I'm eternally grateful, and he and I worked together in a new initiative called Faith Leaders for Ending Gun Violence. And uh, we're getting ourselves off the ground and our hope is to create a network of uh, Christian leaders, particularly Christian leaders, uh, to offer organizational and informational and programmatic uh, opportunities for people and congregations to take on and to offer some uh, uh, witness and help and action against the scourge of gun violence, which is, uh, as we know, is just uh, ratcheted up beyond anything any of us could possibly imagine. And so uh, the, the Christian church, particularly, I say the Christian church, because a lot of the resistance to um, reducing gun violence, in fact, comes from the Christian church. So uh, we need to deal with uh, our brothers and sisters in the Christian faith and uh, engage in conversations, in actions, and and see if we can move the needle, which is already being moved. So um, that's a really good thing. Yeah, and you remind me, you know, that you're, you're, this book is not just about gun violence, but it is some of the organizing you and I have done together. And and we are, you know, uh, gathering once again with heavy hearts tonight as we remember um, multiple mass shootings that were in the news yesterday. I was we we got to check out the news um, last night, and among the terrible, I mean, there was a shooting at the White Sox game. There was a shooting at a high school football game and there was all uh, the terrible shooting um in jacksonville uh that we now know was was fueled by um racism and an act of real um uh, terrorism against uh african americans targeting them in, in florida so um and it's also a reminder that uh White men with guns continue to be the uh, biggest threat to public safety in America. Um, 85% of homicides are done by men. Um, White men with guns are 71% of extremist-related deaths, 71%. So we think of mass shootings, we think of these acts of real domestic terror so often carried out. and, and once again, last night. So um, you're doing a lot of work in this book. So as as we talk about, we jump into your book, Mark. Um, one of the things that you really begin with is um, this idea that we've we've got to not just speak in silos, but we've got to um, 
begin to win people's hearts and minds over to the cause of uh, justice and love and compassion. And you've got a lot of creative language that you use with that. But I, I wanted to give you the opportunity first just to say, like, you know, what was behind this book and what kind of created the fire in your bones to write it uh, right now? Thank you. I think uh, uh, I can start with a story. Uh, I was new to the Diocese of Newark in downtown Newark. That was where our office was. And when I pulled into the office parking lot um, the first week, I noticed that there was a soup line uh, immediately next door at a Catholic church. We shared a, a driveway. And uh, I noticed it because I had started soup kitchens, worked in shelters. Uh, this had been a big part of my ministry. But after two or three weeks, I didn't notice it anymore. Uh, I didn't see it. Why? Because I'm up on the fourth floor of our building, looking out across the diocese, 100 congregations, each with its own mission, its own concerns, its own problems, and all the rest of it. And so I didn't see uh, what was going on next door. I literally didn't see them. Maybe three years in, a priest in the diocese came up to me and she said, what goes on next door? And I said, oh, there's a soup line. And she said, well, let's go. And uh, so a group of us went next door, um, not to serve, uh, but to have conversations with these men uh, who, and it's mostly men, almost exclusively men. And I'm embarrassed to say this, I learned that there were 250 men at breakfast and 250 at men at lunch who I didn't see. They were just sort of foreground of the Passaic River behind me. I, I didn't notice them. And uh, when we finished uh, our conversations um, with uh, many of these guys, uh, we debriefed and, you know, what did we learn? What did we see? And the same priest put her finger in my chest and she said, don't you dare go just once. And uh, so I didn't. Uh, I went weekly uh, and spent time with these guys, and they knew I was the bishop. I had all the uh, accoutrements. I had the ring. I had the purple shirt. I had my own office, all this kind of stuff. So there was a kind of a, a difference in the socioeconomic status of each of us. But we started telling our stories to each other. And some of these guys, I uh, not all, many of them were kicked to the curb, some through their own own doing and a lot of it because that's what the culture does to uh, to um, men of color. And they were almost all men of color. But many of these guys lived with a level of courage and faith that had never been tested to that degree in me. Mm. And, uh, and I didn't see them. And I didn't see them. And so that was sort of the impetus for writing this book. Uh, what don't we see? And we're trained to see what we think we need to see. And often we don't see what's right there in front of us. And uh, I, again, I um, uh, uh, was really transformed by many of these congregation, uh, con conversations. One guy said to me, um, uh, oh, you got to read Psalm 91. And I'm thinking, what's Psalm 91? So I go back to my office, read Psalm 91. It's about eagle's wings and being under the shadow of eagle's wings. He says, 91, Psalm 91 helps keep me alive. Hmm. And uh, you never know who your teachers are going to be. And uh, that sort of also launched into another part of um, the book around mission, uh, the whole notion of mission in the Episcopal Church, where I've been uh for 44 years as an ordained person, uh, we talk a lot about mission, but in large part in the West anyway, and maybe in just the Episcopal Church, but I think in the Christian Church in general, 
uh, mission has been uh, bringing God to places where God is not. Hmm. And if you think about that for a moment, think of the arrogance of that. Uh, there's not a square inch of ground on the face of the earth where God is not working. So mission is joining God where God is already working. Uh, and another notion of mission is, well, doing for, and sometimes we need to do for people don't have a place to live. We need to find them a place to live. They don't have food. We need to find them food. But what often happens, it just maintains the, the, the gap between those who have and those who don't. And the real challenge is to be with and uh, yeah, cool. uh, uh, to be brothers and sisters with one another, to realize that we all have something to learn from one another. And that's not easy to do. Uh, because our whole system, uh, certainly our educational system, and I think our our, our theological systems uh, try and reinforce the distance and the gap between those who have more advantages and those who who have less. And yeah, we would... this disadvantaged people. Wait a minute. Where I think you know it, that that just immediately um, puts it in a category that causes problems. You know, we 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 use the language of brokerage. That the the church is good at brokering resources and services, yeah. uh, but God wants to trans create transformative relationships and build community across class. And so we've got to be more creative than just creating programs where people get stuff and give stuff, but never have these kind of transformative friendships and relationships. And uh, the other thing I, I heard in what you were saying. Uh, Mark is is um, and and you talk about this in the book a little bit. Is is some of our best theology comes from the bottom up? And I know <laughs> you know you you you're a bishop. I've been to seminary. I've been to all these places. But some of the best theology uh, I've ever heard is is coming just out of the struggle um, to survive. And I I was telling uh, Archbishop Justin last night. One of our neighbors saw me out in the garden, and she said, "I get what we're doing. I get what we're doing." And I said, "What?" And she said. We're trying to bring the Garden of Eden to North Philadelphia. <laughs> bring the Garden of Eden to North Philadelphia. I'm like, man, you know, uh, N.T. Wright doesn't even say it that good. But this idea that, um, <laughs> you know, there, there's something to uh, when, when a mother lost her kid in her neighborhood. You've heard me talk about this. Like a 19-year-old kid was killed. And the mother, as we were praying, she said, God knows what it feels like to be me. Mm you know, to lose your child. And that theology, I mean, that's some of the best theology I've ever heard. God knows what it feels like to lose your child. Um, and this theology from the bottom down, or as Bob Eckblad, you know, in his book, he calls, he's got a book called Reading the Bible with the Damned. And mm. he talks about how what's important is not just that we're reading the Bible, but who we're reading the Bible with, right? Are we listening to those who have experienced life a little differently than those in the ivory tower or those in the seminaries and academia? So, yeah, um, yeah man. Another another component of this um, that I uh, I write about in the book, and it's a challenge that that I have faced, and it's a challenge I make to Jesus uh, because when he stood up and held up the scroll of Isaiah in the in uh, in the home synagogue, he said, um, uh, uh, "I bring good uh, what is it? I bring uh, uh, sight to the blind, the lame will walk, the deaf will hear, and the poor will have good news pre preached to them." And he puts the poor in one category. And, and what I've learned, and I've said that, we most of us have said that, we continue to refer to the poor. When we do that, we leave people without names or stories. Hmm. 
And in some ways, I think that's the way we want to keep it. So we don't want to know their stories. We don't want to know their names. And so we keep them anonymous, and that enables us to keep distance from people who are economically poor. I've lived in some very wealthy communities, uh, economically wealthy communities, and a couple of them have been the poorest places I've ever been. Uh, Just uh, hardly any spirit. And a story that I say in the book, and it sticks with me. I heard it my sophomore year in college, I think. Uh, It was right after Bill Russell retired. He was a Played for the Boston Celtics. He won 10 NBA championships in 11 years. Uh, One of the best players to ever play basketball. And he's, what, 6'10", something like that. And incredibly uh, 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 impressive presence. But even more uh, impressive is his uh, um, articulateness and his dignity. And he told the story of going through um, an airport at one point. And a woman comes up to him and says, oh, you're a basketball player. And he says very clearly and uh, graciously, no, madam, I'm a man who plays basketball. Mm. Uh, His humanity needed to come first. He was not going to be defined by the fact that he was a basketball player. Mm. And so when you define people by uh, by a category, you miss out on the opportunity to develop a relationship. And then we don't see people. Uh, I remember um, uh, driving to my my church office in Worcester, Mass., where I served uh, for 14 years, an urban church. And I drive, and uh, I remember I get stopped behind a school bus, uh, maybe two blocks from the church. And I was irritated because it slowed down my commute, which wasn't that long, but you know, it took me a little bit more time to get to church because kids had, had to get on the bus. And it wasn't until two or three years later, I realized, oh, every kid who got on this bus was either black or brown. Mm-hmm. I didn't notice them. I didn't see them. Why? Because I got stuff to do. <laughs> yeah. I want to I want to read this little excerpt because it has uh, a lot to do with uh, what you're talking about right now. But I was thinking as you were sharing that, um, I had a friend of mine with me that's, uh, gosh, she's maybe like, six i'm six three so he's taller than me he must be like six five or six six and um he's an african-american young guy and that we were traveling together and um another kind of prominent leader saw him and said wow you you must uh be a basketball player and he said no i'm a poet because he's a poet (laughs) because he is a poet and he's not a basketball you know but yeah we we so often like kind of um as jesus says don't have eyes to see people and and that's one of the things i mentioned you know in the forward um is that being a person of faith is not just having new ideas but having new eyes to see people uh with the image of god the sacredness of every person and having that imagination to be open to who god's created people to be not just to be shaped by kind of our cultural prejudices and stereotypes so i want to read this little this little clip this is from if y'all are just joining seeing the unseen uh bishop mark beckwith who i'm talking with here um and this is uh, a part where you you write about your own colorblindness and you said i've had a lifetime a lifelong impediment to seeing that is not emotional spiritual or cultural but genetic i'm colorblind I'm among about 10% of men and less than 1% of women who have inherited a trait that makes it difficult to identify colors. Uh, Being colorblind doesn't mean that I can't see colors, but I'm rarely 
able to correctly identify them. I'm pretty hopeless when it comes to distinguishing between green and brown, you said. And when it comes to naming what I call the esoteric colors, um, no way. <laughs> so uh, talk a little bit more about that. But, you you know, you obviously are using it sort of as a metaphor to critique this idea that we just shouldn't see color. We need to be colorblind, right? Yeah, well, I, I, I am colorblind. And, and so when people <laughs> say, you know, oh, we need to wear a colorblind that we don't have a racial recognition. I'm thinking I know what colorblindness is. Uh, there's a funny story. A few years ago, the NFL uh, decided, I'm not sure why, but they um, uh, they had the two teams out there, one in red jerseys and one in green jerseys. And a lot of men don't know that they're colorblind. I've known it since I was six, but some are less colorblind than me. Anyway, in that game, there were more penalties than they'd ever had because so many players <laughs> couldn't tell the difference between red and green. And uh uh, and it, it, something that helped me um, long time ago when I was in college and reading uh, Plato, and he has one of his, um, uh, in the Republic, uh, a, a chapter called the Phaedo, which is Socrates asks his students, how do you know what you know? And they say, well, we know it because we know it. Well, how do you know that you know it? And that was really helpful to me because I could ask any of you who are not colorblind, how do you know that yellow is yellow? Hmm. I'm just more honest than you. I don't know that it's yellow. <laughs> and and uh, um, we often don't know. Uh, we often don't know. And it's sort of a cultural mm, uh, what expectation that we're going to identify yellow as yellow. I cannot always do that. Uh, I just literally cannot do it. Um, so, you know, it helps us, uh, uh, it helps me. And I think, um, well, it, uh, it's always an interesting conversation starter. Oh, can, yeah. you know, people start asking me, what color is this? What color is that? And I try and get them to say, you know, well, we, we also, none of us see as, as well as we could. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and we yeah, all have a blindness. And, and, and uh, you know, that is often the response is just that we don't, you know, I don't see color. I just see uh, people that bleed red blood, you know, that, uh, and, and yet um, it's also a way that a lot of people distort uh, Martin Luther King's um, uh, message. And, and Dr. Bernice King, who's a dear friend, has also been uh, very vocal about this when he talks about, you know, being known by the character of your heart rather than the color of your skin. It's not to say that we should be colorblind, but that our systems and structures um, see color very well. You know, our police yeah. biases, like so many of our um, implicit and explicit biases, they see color. And so we can't afford. Uh, and I think, you know, that's the beauty of God. And you kind of point this out in the book is that God created um, culture. God created us with unique fingerprints and, you know, each of us has our own DNA and we're, we're, we're unique and, and God loves that diversity. God doesn't want us to be colorblind, but to see in full color, to appreciate people and also to be able to correct the way that, that uh, uh, the hierarchy uh, the uh, mythology of racial hierarchy has has said that some people are more human or less human, three fifths human, like all the ways that we've we've uh, ranked people by the shade and color of their skin. So, Lord, have mercy. And, and I think, uh, you know, I'm 
I'm, I'm, get, I'm getting a preaching, so I better stop. But, you know, it's the difference between <laughs> the monoculture of the Tower of Babel and the diversity of Pentecost is that unity exists most powerfully in the context of diversity. So that, mm-hmm. that, that, uh, as red letter Christians, we talk about harmonizing, but not homogenizing. So we're not all just trying to be this kind of strange one, like we, but we, we want to celebrate the diversity and the unity of our hearts is all the more powerful. So I wanted to give you a chance to talk about this because when we're doing organizing work, we tend to, uh, sort of gravitate toward these, um, monoculture, you know, no matter who we are, we're most comfortable around people who are like us, who share our same um, tastes and politics and, uh, you know, look the same, eat the same, vote the same. And yet, like Jesus is blowing that away, kind of pushing us outside of our circles of comfort. And um, you talk about this, you know, some in the book, but, you know, in organizing work, like when we're doing organizing around gun violence, um, some of the most powerful folks right now are hunters against gun violence, gun owners that are against assault weapons, um, folks that um, kind of busts out of the the kind of silos that we exist in. So you you write really powerfully about this. I don't know if you want to say more about kind of what that means for us as we're organizing, but even as we're building community, right? Like how we can get yeah. outside of that monoculture. Yeah. Um, uh, let me say three things. One, uh, briefly, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas wrote that diversity is the perfection of the universe. Uh, so we have the full diversity. We are moving toward perfection, and 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 we try and uh, limit diversity because we're we're a little bit anxious about it, sometimes fearful of it. The other thing we're talking about silos. Uh, my spiritual director introduced me uh, to the concept of mandorla, M A N D O R L A, mandorla. Ah, Shane is yeah. got it, and it's. Um, it is this, it's mandorla, it means almond, and it's the shape that's created when two circles intersect, in which we all learned in sixth grade arithmetic. And uh, and today, or uh, in medieval art, there are lots of depictions of mandorla, uh, not the halo, which is over the head, but the almond shape uh, within, and uh, the mandorla was the intersection between heaven and earth. Today, in our world, it seems to me that the mandorla is the intersection between red and blue, conservative and, and, and progressive. And increasingly, as we all know, as our culture gets more and more polarized, uh, the voices, the, um, uh, the conflict entrepreneurs are saying, oh, no, you need to retreat to the outer edge of your silo uh, because that's where you're going to be safe and you're going to be speaking the same language and you're going to be going to the same restaurants and talking about the same issues. Mandorla is a place in the Christian life anyway. It's a place of transformation. It's a place of creativity. It requires risk to enter that space. And also in the book, um, if uh, you can show it, Shane, uh, Shane, maybe I can, if I pull it up, the Anastasis icon. Um, the Anastasis icon is an icon that I pray before every day, most every day. And it is, um, here it is. Uh, you can't see it very well. Uh, you see the risen Christ 
and he's framed in the mandorla and the almond, and he's reaching down into hell to bring out Adam and Eve. Uh, and uh, Jesus is, is, uh, is positioned to bring people out of their silos. Now, the thing with the mandorla is you can't force anybody out. They have to want to come uh, uh, into this space of transformation. Again, it's a space of risk, but it seems to me that we in the Christian faith, uh, uh, well, in any faith, really, need to be inviting people into the mandorla space. That's, uh, you know, hunters who are uh, uh, advocating for uh, stronger gun laws, you know, that they're, they're coming into that mandorla space. We need to uh, offer support for that. It's a, it's uh, a place of reconciliation. As <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> indicated earlier, I'm an Episcopalian and in our liturgy every week, uh, just before uh, we begin to, to move to the Eucharist, we have the exchange of the peace. Uh, exchange of the peace um, <clears throat> where uh, we greet one another. And I remember when the peace was introduced in the early 1970s, people were not happy about it. Uh, <clears throat> people sat down, some people walked out, people said, I'm here to worship God, not to pay attention to the person to the right or the left of me. I remember my father, who was a very active Episcopalian, saying to me, he thought this was something cooked up by headquarters to thaw out what was then known as the frozen chosen Episcopalians. And I said to him, I was a religion major at the time, a little bit full of myself. No, it goes back to the fifth chapter of Matthew's gospel. When Jesus says, if you're bringing a gift to the altar and remember you have something, your brother or sister has something against you, put your gift down and be reconciled to your brother or sister. Mm -hmm. That is a, um, an action where you're entering into the mandorla space. Uh, it's an act of reconciliation and something that I think we, particularly in the Christian community, need to exercise more to offer a reconciliation, even when no, especially when we don't want to. Yeah, I want to I want to keep going on this a little bit because, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I love uh the way that Martin Luther, there's some things Martin Luther got right and some things he didn't get right. But I, I like when he talks about how every one of us has a sinner and a saint that are at war within a, within us. And mm. every every day we're getting to choose who we're going to be. And you see that kind of in Jesus uh, saying that let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. All of us have, uh, you know, that brokenness inside of us, but we also have that belovedness. We're all made in the image of God. And um, some people um, uh, are very good at seeing the brokenness in, in others, but, uh, you know, we, we, that's, uh, but as you think of this, um, uh, I, I, there's, there's a, a kind of a tendency to just create almost like a false equivalency everywhere that, um, like when Trump, you know, after the white supremacist marched in Charlottesville and killed someone and, you know, did all the terrible, uh, acts of just overt hatred there and said, there's good people on both sides. Um, and even now, you know, as we look at our politics, we are very divided as a country, um, uh, it's it's hard sometimes to have, as scripture says, to reason together, you know, and mm -hmm. I'm wondering, like, what what are the spiritual exercises that you you use to uh, try to create healthy conversation with folks that disagree with you that we, we all might kind of learn from a little bit? 
Yeah, well, I think uh, the act of reconciliation uh, in the exchange of the peace is one way. It's a liturgical way of doing it. Uh, another way, um, uh, as you know, Shane, I've been involved in gun violence prevention for a while. And, uh, I, I grew up, I think, uh, maybe when I was a Boy Scout, I shot a twenty-two. Uh, uh, against a target, but that was a long, long time ago. Um, by the way, Shane and I share the same birthday. We're of different vintages, but we are the same birthday, July 11th. Anyway, uh, I know very little about guns. So uh, I decided I was going to go to a gun show and I go to a gun show and uh, a lot of antique guns being sold, but a lot of accessories being sold. And as I'm um, sort of milling around, I'm listening to conversations and they're talking in a language that I don't understand because I don't know anything about guns. And they're talking about the things that they're really, really important. And I don't understand, but what did come across to me is, oh, uh, these folks who are at this gun show are really passionate about this. And, and I also realized that guns are a fundamental part of American culture. I may not want that, I may not like that, but there it is. Mm. And the more I was there and the more I listened, and I think this is in response to your question, Shane, uh, the more I realized uh, uh, my own arrogance, smugness, and self-righteousness. Mm. And uh, that, um, oh, I, I know what needs to be done about guns without having any relationship with people who own guns or very little relationship, or very little understanding or desire to understand. Uh, I remember I was at some conference a bunch of years ago and uh, with a gun owner, and he was talking, it was a suicide conference actually, and uh, he said he went hunting with somebody and his hunting partner uh, forgot or uh, didn't want to unload his rifle as he climbed over a fence. Mm. And when they finished their hunting um, uh, adventure, uh, this guy who was reporting this to me said, remind me, I'm never going hunting with you again. Uh, because he was not taking the safety precautions that so many gun owners insist that they, that they uh, follow. Now that said, you know, the more guns, you know, the notion is more guns make people safe. I don't, I don't think that's the case. But to your point earlier, Shane, I'm more and more disposed to thinking that the way we can move the needle on gun violence uh, is to engage people who are gun owners yeah, with that community and to honor them, to listen to them and not try and shame them and so many people who work uh, on on the end on the gun violence prevention end are not aware of how arrogant and shame producing they are, which just infuriates the other side. Yeah, and you you, you know you do a great job. That's you know the subtitle of the book is beyond prejudices, paradigms, and party lines, and there it, there really is a self righteousness that. Um, is uh, in the pro progressive uh, world that is, um, you know, I grew up with a conservative, legalistic kind of Christian self-righteousness, moral purity and all that. You know, we don't smoke, drink or do, you know, or, or smoke, drink or chew or go out with girls that do kind of thing. But, you know, then there's also this progressive justice thing that 
has its own kind of version of cancel culture, has its own like theological litmus test policing and in, you know, kind of jargon language party lines, as you say. Um, and it's about moral superiority, you know, um, and I think that that's also what Jesus called the yeast of the Pharisees. Uh, it's poisonous. It begins to um, uh, really um, put our lift ourselves up by pushing other people down. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if I ever told you this, Mark, but when, you know, you and I and many others were prayerfully trying to think through how to respond to the National Rifle Association gathering uh, in Texas so like a year and a half ago or something, like right uh, around the same time of two weeks after the Uvalde shooting. Um, and um, we ended up having a prayer vigil there where we read the names of the Uvalde victims. And um, But when we went in, I don't know if I ever told you this, when we went into the NRA, um, to, to the annual conference of the National Rifle Association, I was a little nervous and I had my credentials and name badges and everything. We had a table, you know, but as I went in, um, one of the first people that I met had read uh, some of my books and he came up to me. <laughs> he recognized me and uh, he said, listen, hey, I wanted to talk to you about your book, you know, and like literally um, it was so uh, disarming and so wonderful. I mean, we had a great conversation and he went on to talk to me. He was one of the exhibitors and was telling me, you know, why he was there and things like that. And, um, we had a great conversation, you know, and, uh, it reminds me that we've got to be careful, um, not to, uh, mirror that same self-righteousness that we, we may have experienced in a different form or with a different kind of political agenda. Um, and, um, you know, most of my family are still gun owners. Um, and, but most of them would be in the camp of gun owners that are concerned about gun violence. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, just today I posted a list of like 20 different common sense gun laws that still don't, you know, do away with the second amendment that allow folks to own guns, but like, 70, 80% of gun owners want to see those changes, but it's got to be humility, right? There's got to be a posture of being willing, even though we may not agree on everything, let's find some common ground. Let's move together on some things that might save some lives. And uh, as you're talking about that, I, I'm uh, in the book, I, I, I spent a little bit of time talking about woke and I've been thinking about it more. Uh, woke to my mind, refers to a growing awareness of, uh, of injustices that, that have been part of our history, particularly racial injustices. Uh, but people who are not woke hear it as prejudice against them for not embracing wokeness the same way that they think people who are woke do. Uh, and what's interesting to me uh, is that a parallel, an unlikely parallel, uh, which is also part of uh, uh, a common discourse, is born again. Born again refers to people who have a deeper faith in Jesus and uh, a more robust uh, relationship with Jesus. But, but people who are not born again, it seems like a prejudice against them. And what happens when woke and born again people take it to an extreme, which both sides are uh, have a tendency to do, there is this notion that uh, I have arrived 
you have not. Uh, I'm in, you're not. I know, and you don't. And it's aggressive and it's prejudicial. I, I really believe it. It's prejudicial. And it just infuriates the other side. Those two terms have become weaponized now, as we know. And uh, um, I think we would do well to either explain them better or not use them at all. Because once something is weaponized, it's hard to, you know, hard to unload the ammunition that's in the weapon. And, yeah, it's uh, interesting, though. It, it does feel like, uh, you know, for a lot of white folks that are using the word woke, they're trying to discredit folks that have a real genuine compassion about uh, uh, for other folks that it's kind of gotten distorted and used against them. And um, I, I, it makes me a little nauseous sometimes to hear folks that are discrediting woke because I, I kind of, uh, I not, not you're not doing that, but I think of like um, that scripture that says, wake up, you sleeper, and Christ will shine yeah. on you. Like, I think God wants to, like, we need to wake up. I think a Dr. King saying like, don't sleep through the revolution. You know, he, t- and he talks about how we, we may um, right now be in the middle of social change that is contingent on our being, you know, awake to, to the possibilities of what we can do. And so, um, but that, you know, it's, it's so interesting how people take these things and, and try to, to discredit it. It's not a word I use very much, but I just, uh, it, oh, it, it's, it's become very unfortunate. I mean, I, I will say I'm, um, on one level, I would say I'm woke, but at another level, and, and um, I've been thinking about this more, I am awakening <laughs> uh, and have a desire to continue to learn um, because there's so much that I don't know because I've been taught a certain way and I've t- been taught to see a certain way. And, uh, uh, and I think, you know, the, the ongoing awareness of particularly of our history, which is filled with all sorts of um, uh, awful, nasty, um, malevolent uh, moments and, and to deny them or to whitewash them or to um, not allow them just gives them more power. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this study that um, I cited in um, I, the, my, my, uh, the book I just did on rethinking life, I, I talked about this study more in common where it, it's very alarming how um, polarized our country is. Right. So yeah. um, not only are folks saying that um, people on the other side of these issues are wrong, but they're actually saying that they're evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this study showed that a very disturbing number of Democrats said that Republicans are evil and the world would be better without them. And almost mirroring that were the number of Republicans that said that Democrats are evil and the world would be better without them. So you start to go, Wow. I mean, th- th- this is almost half of our country saying uh, the world would be a little better off if you weren't even here. Um, and a lot of folks that have studied political tensions, I mean, all these are kind of indications of things that um, make a very combustible society. Right. Like uh, and um, so, you know, as as people who are seeking to be peacemakers, as Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, that doesn't mean that we go easy on truth. I mean, I think we need to speak truth now, but we also need um, 
it's seasoned with love and compassion and the fruits of the spirit, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, one of the gifts of my life was uh, having Henry Nowen as a teacher, mentor, and friend. Uh, uh, I was at Yale Divinity School when he was, he was there for 10 years. And Henry Nowen, to my mind, is uh, the second most important Christian writer of the 20th century. The first uh, most important to me is Thomas Merton. But um, uh, Henry talked about uh, the, the, the danger of uh, thinking that people cannot be converted, mm. uh, which is what the Nazis did. Uh, Jews cannot be converted to anything other than the uh, uh, um, the kind of the designation that the Nazis heaped on them. And when you do that, when you make the con- uh, the statement or have the belief that somebody can't be converted, you end up with Holocaust. Mm. And uh, uh, everyone has the chance to be uh, to be converted to be converted to something. And so I get very nervous when I hear the the term evil, uh, especially when I hear and I always stand up if somebody said that person is evil. Um, I will say that person maybe do evil things, but that person is not evil. Because if we say that somebody is evil, that makes them expendable. We need yeah. to wipe them out. And uh, uh, if there's anything that we can, one of the main things we need to do in the Christian faith is to stand for that. And Shane, you've been doing that for as long as uh, uh, you've had a voice, um, is is to say, no, 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 no. Uh, we may not like what you say. We may not like what you agree with you, what you believe, uh, but we're going to defend who you are as a child of God, regardless I mean, it's also child child rearing 101 here, as you know, is uh, you, you don't tell your child you are mean. You did something mean. And, uh, you know, as Brian Stevenson says, we're all more than the worst thing that we've ever done. And I think we've got to constantly remind each other of that. Right. That this is is um, where grace is so powerful, that we're all more than the worst thing that we've ever done. And um and yet it, it does feel like a really critical time in our country right now where truth is at stake, where it's not even like we're um, disagreeing. It's not even like we're, we're looking at the same facts. It's like we're speaking totally different languages. We're talking at each other. And there's there's um, so much uh, that we work that we've got to do. So I want you to talk a little bit. You write about it, the Braver Angels work, because yeah. it's a really concrete example of what, you know, some of this is kind of good in theory, but what does it really look like? And and that works so beautiful. So tell people a little bit more about it and, and you know, what we uh, can learn, learn from it too. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Braver Angels initially called Better Angels was formed immediately after the 2016 election. Three people said we are headed or we're in a train wreck and what can we do about it? And uh, identified themselves as better angels, referring to Lincoln's second inaugural address, appealing to the better angels of our nature, and uh, brought it together a, a workshop in Ohio in November of 2016, uh, 10 Trump voters and 11 uh, Clinton voters, essentially equal numbers, uh, not to bring one side to the other, but how can we find t- common ground? In the five and a half years since, uh, what is it? It's almost seven years now. There have been thousands of conversations that have been held. It's a, become a national movement. We met 
um, Braver Angels did at a convention in Gettysburg College on the anniversary, the 160th anniversary of uh, the Battle of Gettysburg. And uh, just before the 160th anniversary of the Gettysburg Address. And uh, I mean, talk about having our country torn apart. I mean, we were right there honoring that look where we were look what needs to happen and we had 700 uh delegates there um equal number of reds and blues uh and it's thought that 80 90 percent of people lean one way or the other and of those 700 200 uh came from another organization that wants to become part of a network so we're trying to create a movement a movement of depolarization, and it's grown um, a lot because people want to do this. And I refer to Braver Angels, now called Braver Angels, because another group already had it, had that name. And instead of going through the courts, we decided we'd drop it. And we said, we need to be braver. <laughs> mm, yeah, And uh, we do need to be braver. I refer to Braver Angels is the secular version of the Anglican movement. The tradition that I come from was um, uh, launched in the, uh, the mid-1500s uh, between the tension between Catholics and Protestants. We think it's bad now. It ain't nothing compared to what it was like then. Uh, uh, lives were lost in that tension. And the Anglicans said, uh, if you ask an Episcopalian, Episcopalians is... Is, is the same as the Anglican communion. Um, uh, we just renamed ourselves when we became an independent country. Uh, if you're asked as Episcopalian or an Anglican, are you Catholic or Protestant? We can glibly answer yes. Uh, we are neither Catholic nor Protestants or we're both Catholic and Protestant. We live in that Mandorla space in between. We were created in tension intention in the mid 1500s and for the last 500 years we have lived in that tension sometimes better than others uh as we all know when things get tense we want it resolved and so what do we do we take refuge in our silo with the people who say think sing speak uh, all the rest of that similar to us and we seal ourselves off Mm -hmm. uh, and we can't afford to do that. And, yeah. and and again, the whole impetus of the book is, you know, what are we not seeing? Yeah. Um, what have we been trained not to see? And just to remind folks, this is what we're talking about, seeing the unseen with Mark Beckwith. Uh, and we've got a few minutes left if folks want to write questions. We're, we, we always have some eyes on the different chats on Facebook and YouTube, and uh, some of you are here on Zoom. We can see the chats, and we're looking at them. Um, there's there's a question that came up from uh, uh, Ken that he says, you know, basically kind of talking about how this does take courage, right? I mean, you're talking about braver angels. There's a lot of folks that are talking about not just creating safe places, but brave spaces where people can listen well and speak truth together. Um, but it's risky. And and uh, Ken says. Can you talk, Mark, about initially entering that space, um, which can be messy, especially on hot topics like guns? How do you how do you even kind of begin to create a healthy space and conversation with people that you probably know you already uh, don't see eye to eye on these things? Yeah, well, I think I think it's important to acknowledge uh, 
that part of ourselves that doesn't want to do it at all, uh, that part of our ego that wants to win. I've done a bunch of uh, uh, podcasts on guns. And when I hear the gun rights people talk the way they're doing, I'm biting my knuckle. And I know because they've told me they're biting their knuckle and I'm not really listening. I'm not really listening. I'm, I'm, I'm fashioning a response. Uh, so I think it's important to recognize our resistance and to move beneath the ego to the soul, uh, which, uh, as, as, as uh, Ken has said, is a place of humility, a place of vulnerability, uh, a place where we're afraid. But as Jesus said over and over again in the gospel, uh, fear not, uh, I will be with you. Um, Hallelujah. But it, it, it's hard to do that. And, and what helps uh, is, is, is to be, is to find people who also want to do this. Okay. It yeah. also helps. Um, and there are days, I mean, I'm working uh, in my so-called retirement on reducing gun violence and depolarizing America. These are very big rocks up steep hills. You know, uh, so it's going to give me something to do through the rest of my life. But there are days uh, when I say I'm done. Yeah. And okay. I need to I, acknowledge I want to ask you that. a question about this. You go ahead. Finish your thought. Yeah. Well, I, I, there's some days when I say I'm done. I, I can't do this. And so I need to do something else uh, because it's it's enormously taxing. And, you know, the movement is slow and the resistance is high, the resistance from the other side, so-called other side, but the resistance also in me. Yeah. Uh, and if I'm not restful, if I'm not prayerful, if I'm not uh, doing the things I need to, to take care of my own soul uh, in a community of faith, um, I'm great, I, at greater risk of becoming arrogant, smug, self-righteous, and, and even more difficult to be with than I already am. Okay, now, so I'm going I'm to dig a little deeper on this one, too. Uh, so, so, okay, I am a big believer in Matthew 18. You know, if, if your uh, brother, sister, or sibling has uh, offended you or, or, you know, you think they're, they're doing something wrong, go talk directly with them. If they don't listen, bring a couple other folks, try to reason with them, talk with them. If that doesn't work, you know, you kind of keep broadening the circle a little bit. But the, the whole goal, right, is to bring someone back into the fold and to, to you know, also make ourselves uh, vulnerable and to, accountable to each other. So in the past, you know, there has been a place for church discipline. <laughs> so I've got a question, you know, wearing your bishop's hat, or I was asking Archbishop Justin this the other day, you know, like, I, I think it was Bishop Ambrose that Theodosius was the emperor, and he was killing people. And he excommunicated him, he didn't allow him to take the Eucharist and said, you know, really kind of famously, as the early Christians said, that the blood-stained hand, the one that's killed with the sword, shouldn't carry the Eucharist. Like, you can't kill people and then come take the Eucharist. And yet, you know, there's folks that want to excommunicate Biden because of his position on abortion. But then there's times where I'm like, these, like, the, the some of the folks that are like carrying out the worst policies in our country on immigration, the most unchristlike policies, like the death penalty, it's being done by Christians, right? Greg Abbott in Texas is a Catholic, responsible for about half the executions. Uh, DeSantis in in uh, Florida is a is a Christian as well. And so, uh, is there a place to wear the bishop's hat, or is that just a temptation to take power and to say? 
you're acting in a way that is not Christ-like. You've kind of removed yourself from, because I'm wondering if there's a place for church discipline, because it is our fellow Christians who are doing some of the most unchristlike things and that are using some of the most unchristlike rhetoric in the public sphere right now. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> if you think of a bell curve, there, there, there are people at the outer edges of the bell curve uh, who I think are so locked in mm. uh, to where they are that it, 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 it's, it's not a fruitful enterprise to try and engage them. That, that's not to dismiss them or to say they shouldn't be exist or anything like that. But it's, it's, it's building relationships with people uh, in that, what is it, 80, 80, 85% of people who are somewhere in between to build relationships. And um, I'm, I'm hopeful that by building relationships in Christian communities around the issues of guns, if we can do that systematically with some kind of discipline, uh, that's going to be a larger network of people that those who are making um who are refusing to uh, uh chain to to reform any gun logs they're going to have to pay attention yeah um, we're always i mean i think i'm always uh leave, we always are leaving room for people to be to change their mind and i think for me that's uh, always important if i think of the the opinions that i had 20 years ago 30 years ago um I, I would have had a really awkward conversation with myself probably, you know, if I went mm-hmm. back. And um, so we're all as scripture says, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it, it's hard to show that grace to other people. I think sometimes, and uh, yeah, I was thinking of this guy I met in Texas and he told me, you know, he said, I'm a redneck gun toting pickup truck driving gun. You know, I, I I'm a redneck. And he said, but um, I've been, reading some of your books. He said, he's got me reading my Bible. And he said, I wanted to ask you to pray for me. And then he said, because I'm a recovering redneck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think we're all, you know, we're all recover, like we're all work in progress. But um, sometimes I, I pray that I would have more patience, I guess, with the folks, because it's some sometimes for me, it feels like what's also at stake is the integrity and the reputation of Christianity, because there's a lot of folks that are rejecting a version of Christianity that really doesn't sound much like Jesus at all. And it's been really distorted by the kind of Trump evangelicalism and some of the stuff that just uh, doesn't look and smell and sound like Jesus. Yeah. Well, and it gets weaponized and, and, you know, it's, it's, it becomes an ego adventure of, you know, win, lose. Uh, I remember reading a book um, uh, a bunch of years ago, written by a theologian uh, saying, I win, we lose. Mm. Because we put things on that binary and we, we're, we're increasingly being binary. And certainly at the political level, it's, it's this or that, good or bad, up or down. And when it's that simplified, um, you know, most of us want to be on one side or the other. And there's great pressure for us to be on one side or the other. But if we can move to a deeper level uh, to to the place of the soul where creativity comes from, where love is generated, um, it's not easy. It's not easy. And uh, knowing that there are communities and there are people who want to do this. And my experience is that people have the desire to do this. And um, uh, yeah. 
the, the founder of atomic physics is, uh, was Nils Bohr, who's, who's featured in um, Oppenheimer, the movie. And uh, uh, he's the founder of atomic physics. And Oppenheimer uh, sort of developed what some of the initial ideas that Nils Bohr had. And Nils Bohr said, famously said, the opposite of a fact is a lie. Uh, one plus one is never going to be three. One, the fact is one plus one will always equal two. But he also said the opposite of a truth is a competing truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, abortion yeah. is murder. Abortion is a woman's right to choose. Jesus was fully divine. Jesus was fully human. More guns make people safer. More guns make people uh, 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 more, more susceptible to violence. Um, and we need to live into those tensions uh, yeah. because... Uh, when we live into the tension, something else can emerge. The problem is we don't stay in the tension well enough and we don't enter into it far enough and we don't listen long enough to people on the other side. Uh, now, you have to exercise some, some discernment. Shane, I know you do. I know I do. There's some people they are just so locked in. It, 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 there's not an opening. Yeah. There's um, not an opening. This question uh, that, that came up, this is our last one, and then I'll give you the final word. I would love for you to pray us out, too, in just sure. a second, Mark. But um, it's kind of related to that. So Corey asks, how can one say that Trump or Putin aren't evil? Was Hitler not evil? Um, and um, I want to hear your response. What I what I would say, Corey, to that is that um, uh this idea that we're all more than the worst thing that we've ever done. Um, Henry Nowen actually had a great line on this when he said um, that in the, in those who oppress, we can see our own hands. And in those who are oppressed, we can see our own face. We see our own capacity to carry out evil. And we see our own capacity to live holy lives. And that's why we, you know, celebrate the saints who hold the image of God, but we also, have to learn from the evil of the the Hitlers or the Putins or who you know the folks that have done that to say I'm capable of that same evil. Um, but in the end, if God's grace is not bigger than Hitler's hatred, if God's grace isn't big enough for Donald Trump then it's not big enough for any of us. And that, that doesn't cheapen grace. With grace comes repentance. So I, I, I think we also need repentance. But uh, Mark, what would you say to this, uh, you know, this kind of uh, how someone can be so capable of evil and yet they still hold the image of God in them, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, and and it's a reflexive thing in me, but it, it it's not reactive is something that I've developed over the years, a conviction that no one is evil. That said, people do evil things. And some people, the three people that you mentioned, uh, traffic in evil. They can move in and around it. They can call it out. Um, uh, they're very comfortable in it. My experience of evil, even though I know it exists, I've been in the presence of it, uh, it always is disorienting. I sort of forget who I am and where I am. Uh, uh, the, the notion of God and Jesus sometimes gets lost because of all this energy. Some of these people who do evil things, uh, they're not disoriented. 
(laughs) They're fostering it. And they need to be contained, stopped, all the rest of it. But inherently, I'd say they're not evil. Because as soon as we say somebody's evil, and it's very easy to do, and we live with a level of prejudice in history in this country, where we essentially said somebody was evil or less than human or whatever category we want, then they become expendable. Yeah, so that ability to just hold that tension that the the image of God is um, always in us, no matter how much it feels like the devil is at work in someone, the image of God is still there. And I think I saw Tarsus, you know, who by every definition was a terrorist, a religious extremist, door to door trying to kill Christians. And that's why he himself will say, chief of sinners am I, um, and yet has this powerful conversion. So in the end, it's, um, about how good God is even when we're not, and that someone can have that radical of a conversion as Saul of Tarsus did to go from um, a person who's terrorizing people, um, killing and torturing folks to um, a a life that now, you know, goes on to write half the New Testament and and talks so powerfully about grace. Um, So, Mark, Send us out, my brother. Give us a last word. Thanks, everybody, for joining. If you've uh, just been tuning in, seeing the unseens, what we've been talking about with uh, Bishop Mark Beckwith. And next month, our book will be American Idolatry. Thanks for joining for Book Club. Mark's going to send us out with a closing word and prayer. Thank you, my brother, for a holy hour of conversation. Yeah, well, I appreciate it, Shane, for this opportunity and to uh, um, dig deep uh, as you and I do, and the commitment that we that we share and the the faith that guides us. Um, uh, um, before I issue a prayer, I remember uh, in Isaiah, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, uh, and I remember Woody Allen, who's not necessarily a, a person of faith. Yeah, the wolf may let down with the lamb, but the lamb is not going to get much sleep. And uh, so we have to be, we have to be wary. Uh, we have to be aware, but not fearful, but not fearful. Um, and so let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for the opportunity to gather together uh, across uh, across the airwaves to be in your presence, to listen and learn of your spirit, of your life, and help us to continue to grow, to develop an awareness of your presence in each and every one of us so that we can be open, that we can risk entering into that mandorla space where transformation, reformation, epiphany can happen. And may we take on the mantle of reconciliation because you have given it to us through your son. And may we be empowered and emboldened to witness to that grace and truth. And now as we go to the places from this time where you would have us go, may we be reminded that we never leave you because you always go with us, leading us, guiding us, and setting us free. And for that, we're grateful. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, brother. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you. Thank you, Shane. Join us for morning prayer prayer on September 1st. See you, Mark. I hope to see you soon, buddy. Take care. Okay. God bless. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. 
but at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.